can have a seat. I invite you to turn your, in your Bibles to the book of 2 John. You can find that after the book of 1 John in your Bibles near the end. I've got a bookmark in mine, and so I'll beat you there. Uh, the book of 2 John, and that will be our passage tonight. We will look at, like we talked about, at the whole book, uh, all 13 verses. And I want to begin by uh, reading our passage, 2 John. Uh, John, the apostle of love, writes this. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we've heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we love your son, Jesus. We are so thankful to know the truth that abides in us, and that's because of Christ. And so help us, we ask, to live faithfully in that truth and for that truth. We ask your help now as we look to your word. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at the heart of Christian love, this theme of love in 1 John. We redefined our love. You see, we saw that love, at least as according to the apostle of love, John, is a love unlike any earthly human love. It's a love that is of the very same essence of the love of God in our hearts. It's a love empowered by God and exemplified by God in Christ. And it's a love that should manifest itself, we saw, in both affection and in action. 
And that love itself serves as an assurance for the Christian that the truth does indeed abide if that love is present in your life. Tonight, we get the unique opportunity of seeing John's second letter to this congregation, written perhaps just months after 1 John, and it serves as a renewed appeal for us tonight as well. You see, even though just a week apart in our time, it's as if we are receiving a second letter from the Apostle of Love. And so we get to see not only the love we are called to, as we just saw when we read it, but we see the themes, again, that we looked at in 1 John, repeated and intertwined, light and life and love. 2 John beautifully intertwines these strands of truth, showing us in just 13 short verses the interconnectedness, the sort of integral nature of these three truths and so much more. 2 John has this kind of, like to call symbiotic, Theology. You know what symbiosis is, right? Y'all South Campus people. It's sort of codependency that we see in the theology of John's writings, and especially here in 2 John, between light and life and love. You know symbiosis, clownfish and sea anemone, right? Uh, one protects the other, the other eats little things off of it and keeps it clean. Or, excuse my simplicity, you know, North Campus over here, bees and flowers, symbiosis. You know about that, codependency, helpfulness. Now, there's other kinds of symbiosis, but we won't go there. The symbiosis you guys know of is dorm person who has meal swipes and then the person upgrading them. It's symbiosis, right? And that's what's going on here in Second John with these themes of light and life and love. There's a codependency. There's a building off of each other in these themes. And at the core of this symbiosis that we see in 2 John, John emphasizes light, that is, truth. John uses the word truth in the first four verses, even just those four first verses, he uses it five times. And yet we'll see as this book goes on that this is also about love and life. It's about Love in the truth, and life in the truth. And so naturally, as John's second letter, 2 John is a call to abide in the truth, to continue in what we saw in 1 John, to keep going, to keep walking, to abide in that which was in 1 John, but in that which we began in as Christians. To not just continue believing, but to continue loving and to continue obeying, to abide in the truth. Friends, this is the kind of reminder that we need, and especially at this point in the quarter, as the weeks wear on. We need this kind of reminder to abide in God's truth. And we need this kind of reminder at this point in life, when you live on a campus like this one and you're trying to be in the world and not of it you need this reminder to abide in the truth and yet we need this reminder in every season of life because when things are swell 
we'll be tempted to take our foot off the gas just a little bit. And then when things are tough, we'll be tempted to give up. That's how fickle our hearts are. And so we need 2 John because it reminds us that we need to abide in the truth. And that's what we get in sort of compact version 2.0 form here. We'll see tonight that life in Christ, very simply, is life abiding in the truth. Life in Christ is simply life abiding in the truth. So let's look tonight at four aspects of abiding in the truth. You can call them steps or ways or things or responsibilities. However you want to think about it, there are four aspects of abiding in the truth that we've got to devote ourselves to. The first is in verses 1 through 3. We must look to the truth. We must look to the truth. Here in 2 John, the apostle of love addresses this church. He addressed a group of churches, perhaps, or maybe a, a church in 1 John. And here in 2 John, he addresses one of those churches. He calls that church the elect lady and her children. And commentators have spilt much ink about whether this is a church or this is an actual single woman and her children or it's a church and the people. I think, after studying this all week and spending way too much time on this, that this is very likely a personification. It's not an actual woman and her children, but a particular congregation personified, and its members personified. You see, I could give you any number of reasons, but this is language familiar to 1 John. If you read 1 John with me, we saw over and over, John calls those believers, he's writing to little children, little children, and then sometimes not little, but children. He calls them over and over, children, little children, little children, love one another, and so on and so forth. And then also in John's writings, in Revelation especially, John calls the church the bride of Christ. And so this language of a lady and her children is not unfamiliar to John's writings and to the whole New Testament canon, for that matter. In fact, verse 13 of our letter suggests that John is writing from one congregation to another, from uh, the elder and the elect sister in verse 13 and the children of that elect sister to the elect lady in verse 1 and her children. And so I think it makes most sense to understand this as a congregation and her members personified. Now, I always love the opening sections of New Testament letters. I don't know if you've caught on to that. But it's because they always show the heart of the author. You see, before, whether it's Paul or Peter or in our case, John, before the author gets to the heart of the matter in their letters, before he gets to the, the meat of what he wants to say, the author shares what's naturally on his heart. It's at the tip of his tongue. What sort of encouragement he just wants to start with. It's kind of the first few lines of your prayer. And here it's no different. In these first three verses, John's greeting shows us what's on his heart, just very simply. And it's this, that we must look to the truth. Look again at verses 1 and 2. 
the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Friends, as we seek to abide in the life that we have in Christ, we must keep looking to the truth. We must have our eyes fixed on God's truth. We must keep our hearts stayed on the truth. Now, John, unsurprisingly, expresses his love for these believers in verse 1. He points out his own love for these believers. Specifically, he says, whom I love in the truth. But he also points out the broadness of that love, the wideness of that love. You see, here in John's theology, there exists a love between all true believers because we share in the same truth. The truth that is about Christ and his gospel. The truth that is over and above us as human beings because it is God's truth. It's a truth that has existed since before time began because it is the truth of the God who is light. And John says here in verse 2, it's the truth that will be with us forever into eternity because it is the truth of the God who is light. The truth of the Alpha and the Omega. The truth of the eternal God. That's the truth that he has graciously given to us. And so as we seek to abide in that truth, we've got to just simply look at that truth constantly. It's that truth in this life that brings us into loving fellowship with God and with one another. It's that truth that brings us into this sweet fellowship. Turn back to 1 John. It's 1 John 1.3. We looked at this verse. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It's that word fellowship that happens twice there. Koinonia. It's that shared truth. That, that, that Excuse me, sharing in truth. It's the fellowship that we have because we believe the facts about the gospel and we share in spirit. And so John loves, and you and I should love, all others who also share in knowing and believing this truth about Christ. This is what should help you go home to your home church a little better this break. This is what should help you think better about the person across the room who is so different than you. This is what should cause you pause when you start to hold a grudge because you think you were wronged by somebody. This is what should cause you pause when you start to assume badly about somebody else's intentions. There's a sweetness to this fellowship that believes the best. There's a sweetness about this fellowship that exudes love 
and forgiveness and hope. That's the kind of truth that we share in. Look to the truth. Look to the truth. Because when you look to the objective, undeserved truth that has been so graciously given to you in love, you'll be reminded of the love you are to have in the truth and the love that you have been given in the truth. You see, truth in this way reorients us. It sets us right. It's a compass for our souls. It's a light for our path when we're not thinking right. Notice verse 2. Again, we've said this, but that John says this truth abides in us who believe and will be with us forever. You see, because it's God's truth, it will last into eternity. And so we have a steadfast love. We have sure promises that the truth that we know about Christ sent from the Father will be with us throughout anything we face in life. Because it's truth that transcends our finite existence. And yet that was manifested graciously by God in his only son. You see, it's truth that is undeserved because it's truth that it's God's truth that we should not be able to have or understand. But First John and Second John here show us it's God's gracious manifestation in his son Jesus that gives us this truth. Jesus, the light of the world, the light of life, shone down into darkness and to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the truth in which we are saved. This is the truth by which we abide. And this is the truth that we need to look to ever more constantly. And because the truth will be with us forever, John says, so grace and mercy and peace will also be with us as we abide in the truth. Look at verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. You see, all that God has done for us in His grace, that favor that we did not deserve, and all that God spares us from in His mercy, that punishment for our sin that we so rightly deserved as needy sinners, He spared us. And that precious and lasting peace with him. No longer at enmity with him, but reconciled. These are truths we have in the gospel. And these are the confidences that we have into eternity. Because this is truth that will be with us forever. This is the truth that we must look to. And these are the gifts of grace. Grace, mercy, and peace. That we must see. All of these things which are a help to us in abiding in the truth. And that flows straight into our second aspect of abiding in the truth. 
And that's that we must love in the truth. We must love in the truth. We've already gotten a little bit of this flavor of love in the first few verses as John expresses his love and shows the love that believers everywhere have for one another. But in verses 4 to 6, John gives us a succinct statement of our responsibility to love. And it shows us so helpfully the integral connection that love has to abiding in the truth. Look at verses 4 to 6. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Here, just like we did look, we looked at last week, John makes reference to the commandment to love that these believers have heard from the beginning. It's a commitment, a, 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 excuse me, a commandment as old as God's law for his people Israel. And yet we saw last week, as Jesus says in John 13, it's also a new commandment in the sense that Jesus redefined love's paradigm. You see, he loved us to the point of death and death on a cross. And so our love for one another in obeying this, yes, old commandment has a new empowerment and a new example in him and a new sort of limitless scale to it. Now evidently it's something that many in this little church that John is writing to had been doing faithfully. You see, in verse 4, John rejoices greatly to hear of their obedience, to hear of their faithful walking in the truth. You see, because to John, walking in the truth is walking in love. Symbiosis here. Look at this connection in verse 6 between love and obedience to God. This is love in the truth. Look at verse 6 again. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. See, love is the fitting response to and the reflection of who God is and all that he has done. You see, God is love. And in love, he sent his son to die for us, to be the propitiation for our sins. And so as we have that truth, And as we abide in that truth, it is natural then that we are also to love in response to love God and to love others in the truth. Think of this kind of love like the Olympic spirit. You know about the Olympic spirit? We've got another Olympics coming at us next year. It's Summer, I think. It's not winter, so it's not all the weird sports. It's, it's all the cool ones. We have a new staffer. She's not here tonight. I think that's in God's kindness. But, uh, but Sydney Lavroni, she's a, she's a, look her up. She's super famous. She runs really fast. And she's got the Olympic spirit. I think if you, if you talk to her, she understands it. 
The Olympic spirit is this sort of vague, but somehow still familiar concept to all of us who are fans, who, who watch the Olympics late into the night and get disappointed when they get reprogrammed over by, I won't say what sport, but you know the sport that y'all don't want to watch. And so you've seen this Olympic spirit that I'm talking about, but I don't think you could define it. You don't know what it is exactly. It's some mixture of sportsmanship and this sort of never give up, even if you're a lot behind kind of thing, and sort of a good old-fashioned struggle against adversity kind of thing. It's an embodiment of the Olympic values, excellence, friendship, and respect. It's this kind of understanding that the sport is bigger than just yourself. The Olympic spirit is what makes these sort of iconic Olympic moments, right? Two athletes helping one another across the finish line. Or two athletes agreeing to both win gold after going back and forth at it. You've seen it. The Olympic spirit, it's a respect that does not somehow, though, dial down the competitiveness in the Olympic Games. You see, the Olympic spirit is not to be clear, at odds with winning. The Olympic spirit is not adverse to winning and winning by a lot. I mean, that's what Sydney does every race. She smokes everybody and then gives hugs to everybody afterwards. I think so often how we think about love for others is that love is some fuzzy feeling that dials down, not competitiveness, but the truth. That living in love is at odds to living for the truth. That there are two things, love and truth, that we need to find the perfect balance for in our lives. As if they couldn't coexist. But that is not at all what Christian love does. You see, Christian love is in the truth. Christian love is found in and defined by and integral to and inseparable from the truth. The truth about Christ, and the truth about God, and the truth about His Spirit, and the truth about the Gospel, and the truth about God's Word and all that is contained in it. And so love and truth are to be understood together and lived out together. Jesus Himself commanded us in truth, to love God, and to love your neighbor, and to forgive, and to put away anger, and to love your enemies, and to turn the other cheek, and give to the needy. That's just the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what verse 6 shows us, that to love is to follow the truth. To love is to obey His commandments. And to obey his commandments is to love. This is the integral nature of love and truth. Love does not dial down the truth. You see, in fact, you cannot have the truth, truth and believe the truth and be without love. That's what 1 John told us. And you cannot, as a Christian, love others truly without the truth informing the nature of your love. And that's why Jesus said in John 13, 35, 
By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what we've seen in John's epistles and if you've been reading with me in John's gospel so far. It's that kind of love that is in accordance with the truth and is in the truth. And it's what we see again here in 2 John. And that's not the end of the theme of love in 2 John, even though it seems like it as that section seems to end. There's another important reason for John's instruction in love here, and it has to do with the rest of what's here in this short letter. And it brings us to our third aspect of abiding in the truth, and that's this, we must stand firm in the truth. We must stand firm in the truth. And we're not done with that theme of love, though. You see, John gives this instruction in love, not just so that love would have some sort of positive, encouraging, K-love kind of upbuilding effect in the church. True, though, that's what he wanted, part of. It's not just that John wants these believers to love so that the presence of that love gives them assurance about their genuinely being converted. Yes, that is part of why he wants them to love. But what we need to see here is that John, in 2 John, urges these believers toward love because he sees danger knocking at the door of this church and yet he sees love standing guard at the threshold. Look at verse 7 to see the logic John uses here as he's just encouraged this love, this following of Jesus' commandment because it's so important to see this incredible utility that love has in a situation that seems to have gone awry. Verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Notice that little word for in the beginning of verse 7. It's often taken as in sense because. So you could think of it as for or because. It's a a little word in Greek. It's so important that we catch this because it tells us that John's instruction to love, his reminder that we just looked at in verses 5 and 6, as we have heard from the beginning, to love one another and to obey Jesus' commandment in that, that is for this reason. That commandment, that expectation for us to love is because there are these deceivers that were there in John's day and that exist in our day too. You see, in John's theology here, a love for others in the truth, the love that you and I have for one another because of the truth and in the truth and for the truth emboldens us and strengthens us so that together we better know the truth and we believe more strongly the truth 
and then we can stand firm together in the truth against error and deception. You see, by our love, we strengthen and mature and build one another up such that when deceivers come, we are prepared to stand firm. John Piper says of these few verses, solid affection for believers is a protection against deception. Solid affection for believers is a protection against deception. You see, that's the pivotal, protective role that love plays in the church. It doesn't just make us feel better. It fortifies our strength in the truth. Now these deceivers, in verse 7, have gone out into the world, which tells us that at some point they were inside, inside the church. One commentator says this, John still views these people from the doorway of the church that they left. Former members might be their title. You see, these are people who apparently still have influence, still have contact with people in the church. And so John wants those he's writing to to be alert, to beware these people. That same commentator goes on to say this, they are no longer just exiles from the church, they are now in the world and allied with the Antichrist. Strong words. And these people, these deceivers, they were around in 1 John as well. Flip over to 1 John and look at these deceivers. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not, they all are not of us. Now what John is talking about here in 1 John 2 and in 2 John verse 7, he's talking about Antichrist, sort of with a lowercase a. This isn't the Antichrist of Revelation. This isn't the singular final world ruler who opposes Jesus in the end. But these are false teachers, deceivers, little a Antichrists, who are indeed, 1 John 2 says, a sign of the end times, a sign that the time is near. And these deceivers imbibe the spirit of the Antichrist in that they deceive men and oppose Christ just like the Antichrist will. First John 2 helps us understand that these deceivers, they are those who before seemed as if they were of the congregation. They seemed like they were of the fellowship in the truth. It seemed like they did share in a love for the truth. But these deceivers, by their denial and by their departure, have shown who they were all along. Sadly so. 
1 John 2 and 1 John 4 help us to understand the cardinal error of these deceivers. Chapter 2, verse 22 says that they denied Jesus as the Christ. And then chapter 4 fills that out a little bit more. These people did not confess that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. And we see a similar thing in 2 John, that description. This is what through church history has been called docetism. It's a denial of the full and real incarnation of Christ. It's a denial that Jesus Christ actually came in the flesh, in a real human body. Docetism, therefore, is a denial of the reality and the necessity of the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so it's a denial of the core truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You see, with docetism, because you see, docetism is a full denial of the truth, because if Christ did not fully come in the flesh, but simply, as these deceivers would say, simply manifested himself in some way that was not real and actual and fleshly, you throw out the efficacy and the reality of his death and resurrection. And like 1 Corinthians 15 says, our preaching is in vain, and our faith is in vain, and we are of all people most to be pitied. Yet we know the truth about Christ. We know the truth about the incarnate Christ. We know Colossians 2, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Then Philippians 2, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. John 1, I love the way that, that passage says it, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, Jesus, being fully God, took on flesh and became a man such that he was 100% God and, still, and also 100% man. And so these false teachers who had risen in John's day were denying the reality of Christ in the flesh. They had some fanciful idea of, of philosophy and how they could reconcile the idea that, God, that Jesus was God and that he was also in some form, manifestation, man. And they were trying to drag others in the church down with them. It will not always be over the reality of the incarnation, friends. With the deceivers that you and I face, maybe it's somebody on Bruin Walk, or it's somebody a little closer to home. The deceivers you and I face, it'll be about something else, the inerrancy of Scripture, or God's design for men and women, or the deity of Christ, maybe, or the immutability of God. Regardless of what truth is at stake, this is the kind of people Jesus warned of in Matthew 24. That in the last days, he says, they would rise up and lead many astray. And it's with that in mind that John's instruction here is twofold. First, as it pertains to ourselves in verses 8 and 9. And then secondly, as it pertains to these deceivers in verses 10 and 11. Look first at this instruction to 
watch yourself. Look at verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Grace on campus, this is a call to self-awareness. It's a call to look around you a little bit and check your pockets. To, in humility, consider yourself and see your weakness and see your pride and to watch yourself when you interact with deceivers. It's reminiscent of the book of Jude that we looked at 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 retreat, Jude 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You see, we are so prone in our pride to think of how we can minister and how we can fix and how we can hero our way in these situations. But the Bible tells us, watch yourself. Watch yourself. Keep yourself. Look after your own soul. Take seriously the threat of those who oppose the truth and see the need to watch over your own soul. Be careful that you yourself are not someone who, this passage says, goes on ahead with your own ideas and does not abide to the faithful teaching of Christ. You see, because in the name of thinking for yourself, or being relevant to the culture, or even of seeing what the Bible really says, never mind against centuries of church history and faithful interpretation, this kind of deceiver, this kind of person that you may be exposed to claims to know the truth and tells it to you like the truth and shares it with you from their heart as if it's the truth. But in fact, they undermine the truth. And so John is saying, before you're even concerned about how to address this person, watch yourself. It's a message of love. It's a message of care from the elder to his children. It's a message of abiding in the truth. Watch yourself. See yourself faithful through to the end. Don't lose, don't squander what we've worked for as apostles, John is saying. Look to win the full reward. And that reward is what John spoke of in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. That's our reward. Full and final transformation. When faith becomes sight. When what started with him becoming like us ends with us becoming like him. And whoever abides in the truth, John says, 
will find that reward because he has both the Father and the Son. Watch yourself. See to it that you win this full reward. Verses 10 and 11 shift the focus quickly, giving us instruction instruction on how to deal with these deceivers. Uh, Look at those verses there. Look at uh, verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. John's instruction here is simple. Super straightforward. Disengage. Mark and avoid. Don't even have him over or greet him, John's saying. And I know this may sound extreme. This may sound unloving even. But you've got to remember the kind of person John is talking about here. This is someone who flat out denies the faith and the truth about the Christ you love. And this person is hanging around enough that he or she is dangerous to the truth. And so before we go on about how this isn't loving, we have got to put this into perspective with our love for God, and our love for His truth, and our love for others in the truth. And how this person, this deceiver, isn't so secretly opposed to all of that. Got a big game coming up tomorrow, so we can understand it in these terms. Trojans are the enemy, right? See, this isn't just having a friend who goes to USC and majors in computer computer science or something. Like, that, that would be okay in John's terms. This is like becoming BFFs with Caleb, the quarterback for the other team. This is treason. So John is saying, have nothing to do with this kind of person. Create a little separation in your heart and in your practical sort of outworking in your life. You see, he's saying, first, don't get entrapped yourself by having this guy over for dinner. And then also, secondly, don't let this person feel the benefit of the warmth and the love of God's people. And now again, this sounds extreme, but it's all over the New Testament. I know your favorite book is Romans. It's my favorite book too, right? Romans is all about the gospel and the righteousness of God and a lot of positive things, a lot of things about God's righteousness being given to us. It's awesome, right? Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. Second Thess 3.14, talking about someone who rejects the instruction in that letter. Have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. And catch this logic here. I think that in that verse, Second Thess 3.14, and then in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy, where those passages talk more actively about putting someone out of the church, There is a common thread, a general principle that is anchored, that is rooted, 
in love. That those whose false doctrine don't belong in the church, we ought not to bring them in to the love and care of the church. We ought not to incubate false doctrine or deception. We ought not to give a stamp of approval or aid and abet or even let that get too comfortable amongst us. And we must protect the love and the sanctity of the saints in the church. That's the reality of standing firm in the truth. And that's John's heart here in 2 John. But here's how that's anchored in love. See, the prayer, I think, the humility, I think, the understanding of this truth that is transcendent above us, I think, is that the prayer in all of these cases is that by being left out in the cold, this person would repent and truly seek the Lord. That this kind of deceiver, that in their lives, somehow through being left out, that God would work in their heart to embrace the actual truth about Christ. This is difficult instruction. It's tough truth. But it's what it means to stand firm in the truth. And this is what John has for us tonight. It's what the Word of God has for us tonight. It's what the Spirit of God is instructing us in. And I think it's so fitting and so helpful for us. Because I know some of you face discouragement and even some level of conflict with close friends and family members or maybe church friends who have defected from the faith and who are like these deceivers, perhaps even trying to drag you down with them. And for us who are of the truth, in this instruction there is great hope and help found in the truth itself that we believe the actual gospel. But there's hope and help also found in the support and the care of the body of Christ as we abide in love and truth together. And that brings us to our final aspect of abiding in the truth, very briefly. Here in verses 12 and 13, we see John's desire to be united in the truth. We must unite in the truth. John's desire is to be united with these believers he's writing to, and his desire is both spiritual and literal, physical. You see, John, the elder, is far from these believers he's writing to. It's likely he's in Ephesus, and they are miles and miles away. And he expresses his heart in writing to them, and yet he wants to be with them. Look at verse 12. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. These verses are often used as a justification for in person, for face to face. I think after the last few years of asynchronous life, you get it. In person, face to face is better. But this verse isn't just a verse against online classes or text messaging or long-distance relationships. I see some of those things, I think, but I think it's missing the point of what's here. 
You see, the emphasis of what John is saying here is in that last phrase in verse 12. So that our joy may be complete. You see, this is John's point, and this has been John's point all throughout 1 John and here in 2 John, that what God has given us through his son Jesus to all who would place their faith in him is a shared life together in the light. Fellowship in the truth in which we are united in love for God and in love for one another. And when that fellowship is unhindered, even in terms of physical distance, that is the fullness of joy. It's the fellowship, not the face-to-face per se. The fellowship is the fullness of joy. You see, together we rejoice in the truth. Together we abide in the truth. Together we love the Lord and we love one another in the truth. That's what's important here. This is the kind of genuine Christian affection that is accompanied by action. Yes, indeed. Love that is not only in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So that's what John's love does. It compels him to action. That's why he wants to visit, to see these believers again. And it's no small deal. It's no small task. He's old. And first century travel was difficult. I mean, this isn't spirit or united. This is potential life or death. And yet John, in his affection for these believers in his earnestness for the fellowship of the truth, he wants to be a ministering presence to these believers. Uh, He wants to be an agent of encouragement and exhortation for what God might be doing despite these deceivers in their midst. And for that ministry, for that love to be incarnate, just like the incarnate Christ, whom he had himself seen and heard and looked upon and touched, and upon whom his and their and our whole faith is predicated, that kind of a real face-to-face ministry would make his joy and theirs complete. And so do you see how this verse can be so easily shortchanged as a verse that tells you face-to-face is better than texting? It is, sure. And I guess you're allowed to use this verse that way if it helps you. But this verse isn't just that. Because what is important and effective about being face-to-face for believers isn't just that we are face-to-face. It's that we share in the fellowship of the truth and that we are united in in life and in love in the truth. And with the love of God in our hearts, we ought to pursue being united in the truth. We are drawn in to one another, compelled to connection with one another, over and against boundaries, whether they are literal or physical or spiritual. That's why the New Testament has so much about love and care and bearing burdens. and That's the idea of forgiveness, is breaking down that barrier of connection and seeking love. That's why 
Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 is so important that we don't neglect to meet together. Yes, physically. Yes, literally. But especially in spirit, in fellowship, in the truth. So whether it is possible or not physically to be together, whether we are John planning to visit or we are like the sister church in verse 13 who could not visit and simply sends their greetings. This is what love does. It desires to be united in the truth and pursues ever more often and ever more intimately being united in the truth. And so I guess we can end where we began. This is symbiosis, isn't it? Not just of the concepts in this passage, but of me and you. We need each other. You and I as partakers in divine truth, those in the fellowship of the truth, we need one another as we seek to abide in the truth. Now we always do this. We always sing to close our time. But I think tonight it's especially helpful because we need to look to the truth by singing and rehearsing the truth that we believe, the grace of God in our midst, and how sweet and how awesome or awful is the place with Christ, the truth about Christ in its doors. And so that response, I think, is fitting as we land the plane tonight. There could be no better way than to raise our voices in worship to God. Let's do that, but let me pray, and then we'll sing. Father, thank you for your truth that we find in your word in Second John, a compelling case for uh, abiding in your truth, Father. And that path to abiding in truth isn't so smooth sometimes. We see that in these verses. But we have the fellowship, the koinonia that we have in the truth, the love and care of the body of Christ. And so we embrace that, and we live in that, and would that sweetness of fellowship be true even tonight? Uh, not just in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Father, let that be true, even now as we sing in response and in praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.